happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room for December the 11th, 2019. We are in episode 158, and I am being slow because I was looking to make sure my microphone settings were said correctly. Uh, this is Wes Fryer coming to you from Oklahoma City, where if you hear various uh, plastic bottles and other things being slung around a room, that would be the new Golden Retriever puppy, <clears throat> which we have creating some chaos and excitement around our house. I am the director. No, I'm not. I am not a director. I am the technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School. So for the last four years, I've said that D word, but not now. And uh, yes, I'm joined as always by Dr. Jason Neifer, who I think has made a transition to a tablet world and is in letterbox mode tonight. So we're, we're glad that you're able to join us, Dr. Neifer. And we're also sorry to hear about your recent injury and changed plan, but happy that you'll be able to, I think, join us uh, next, next week on regular schedule, uh, much to the disappointment of, you know, those in your, in your travel party who are going to Spain. Yes, yeah, I was uh, prepared to announce this week that I'd be missing a couple episodes, or at least if I were going to join in, it might be via, you know, 4G networks in Spain, because my wife and I intended to go to uh, Spain for Christmas and had a two-week trip planned there. Um, but uh, literally moments after we wrapped up uh, last week's broadcast, I walked downstairs um, in my home and I stepped on a ginormous dog Kong that uh, was not, unfortunately, very foot efficient, so I... Took a tumble, um, thought that I just twisted my ankle, and then the next morning found out that I actually broke a couple bones in my fifth metacarpus something or another. So I'm on strictly on on footrest for the next month. Um, the I guess the upside being that I will be able to attend next episodes of the tech situation room, but. Um, and I will also be able to continue to do my job, which is I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus in fabulous and chilly Missoula, Montana. Um, and as usual, uh, Wes and I have put together a whole uh, a ditty of links at our website, www.edtechsr.com, and we have quite a few things to talk about tonight. It is the, the slowdown of news is starting to happen as it does in December of every year. The technology is, is turning more reflective, and it's probably doubly reflective because we're at the end of the 2010s. And I uh, will share an article tonight from The Verge that talks about the best gadgets of the last 10 years. But it'd be really hard to make the argument that the last 10, uh, 10 years hasn't been enormously uh, productive from a technology standpoint. And if you think about that, it was 10 years this coming uh, spring that the iPad was released, you know that it's been an extraordinary decade for technology. So, Wes, where would you like to start us off this evening? Uh, well, let's let everybody know. I think next week we're going to do our special pre-holiday show to talk a little bit more about gadgets and gifts. So <clears throat> we may go into some IoT things and and other such such uh, frivolity. So uh, yes, we will be talking as usual about our our tech headlines. But we've done that the last couple of years. And and uh, anyway, if that's in time for someone to you know get some shopping ideas for that special uh, technology loving person in your life, then that is great. Um, let's see. Why don't let's go to a new section that I titled tech. Cold War. So to give everyone like a little overview, if you're not looking at the show notes for episode 158, uh, we have little headlines over articles and sometimes it's just one article. But tonight we've got retrospective, ecosystem world, YouTube, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Android tech correction, media literacy, tech cold war, security, surveillance state and our geeks of the week. So, Alex, I'll take tech cold war for five hundred dollars, uh, but I'm not going to probably ask this as a question. <clears throat> um the article, which kind of um, made me think this is a, a good little subtitle or headline for a section, was the Guardian article from December 8th uh, titled, China Tells Government Offices to Remove All Foreign Computer Equipment. And we have been talking on the show for a while about Huawei and the United States. We've talked about, uh, and, and the, you know, the, the CFO of Huawei that, I mean, I haven't gotten an update, but she was being held in 
Canada, you know, pending an extradition request from the United States. We've, you know, had these different allegations about how carriers, you know, should not be installing Chinese manufactured Huawei devices for the transition to 5G. Um, you know, in terms of a tech cold war, that's not just China, U.S., but it's also China, uh, U.S., Russia. You know, we talked in the past about Kaspersky and the prohibition of using Kaspersky software on all, you know, U.S. military and U.S. government computer systems. So <clears throat> what this article, you know, suggests is that China is going to be spending a lot of money over, you know, the next year or so. And they're going to be trying to have all domestically produced hardware utilized in their government and then also software. And so this is going to be really interesting from an open source standpoint. You know, we've talked about, uh, I don't know, it was, a, it was a, probably over a month ago, you know, where Google decided they're going to, you know, stop updating Android on Huawei devices. And so, you know, can they have their own ecosystem? Um, this is a really big shift in the overall kind of thesis of the internet and having a global network. And that would be that you have interoperability and, you know, regardless of device, these packets can be, you know, forwarded along. Uh, and, and we've, you know, probably talked in the past about countries like Iran. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think North Korea is just kind of like cut off from the internet, you know, largely in terms of its civilian population. But Iran is a country that's talked about, you know, just having its own network, closing off, you know, the world and, and having its own intranet. I mean, you know, last week we talked about, uh, the, the Russian president Putin's announcement that they were going to make their own, you know, version of, of Wikipedia. So, uh, I think this just sounds pretty yucky overall from a, like, you know, global communication, you know, internet networking standpoint, but I think it's a sign of the times. And I guess one of my connections to the classroom would be, I mean, we need students today to, I mean, we live in pol politically polarized times. We're not a political show, but we need students to understand uh, the hostility. And even though it's not necessarily a, a hot shooting war, you know, between the U.S. and China and between the U.S. and Russia. There are, you know, huge digital cyber operations underway today. There have been. It's just a continuing uh, war. And so this article uses the terms, you know, tech cold war to refer to what's happening between China and the United States. So what is your take, Dr. Knifer? Well, I, I read this article with a lot of interest in part because the hardware part, I get, I don't really know what the alternatives are for Microsoft Windows, because my guess is the article refers to the fact that most of the hardware uh, that hardware that's available is designed around the Windows operating system. The, the one exception to that, of course, is, is Mac-based machines, and I guess Chrome OS is technically a, a, an alternative here, but the problem with that, of course, is the fact that it's developed by United States, uh, uh, United States vendor Google that has had a bumpy relationship with the government of China. But I'm reminded of the, the, the decision of the city of Munich in 2003 to dump all Windows machines and go with Linux and open source operating systems. And that actually, that, that has, has, has in just the past couple of years reverted back to Windows because the satisfaction by Munich government workers and officials was, was lower than they had expected, but I was just looking a, a, a couple of minutes ago, and there are, you know, major Chinese-backed uh, Linux distributions, many of which, uh, this particular one I'm looking at right now is called uh, Kylin. It's developed by the National University of Defense Technology in People's Republic of China, and um, they're uh, apparently continuing to actively develop uh, that particular software. It's interesting to me, of course, that they're, they're, you know, they might be developing a, a software alternative to that. And the one thing I guess I would say in, 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 in from my own experience is that one of the things that, that's absolutely true that, uh, it wasn't true maybe 15 years ago is that the web is now good enough to be an efficient, uh, platform for most tasks on its own, right? The web-based properties, web-based software, uh, is, is in my humble opinion more than good enough, uh, to suffice 
to replace desktop alternatives. And so if, if China wants to go in that direction and largely use a Linux-based operating system as a terminal server, basically, uh, or I'm sorry, a terminal to get onto the Internet, which is, is where may, much of that power um, would exist, I think is super interesting. One of the things I think we've loosely referred to on this show, and it does threaten the worldwide universality of the Internet, is that we're starting to get to a point where there are separate Internets in different geopolitical regions, right? Uh, Russia uh, has effectively its own Internet, not just because it has alternatives to Western software like Microsoft software, Google software, uh, but also there are networks in the so-called Russian Internet that are not accessible by Western IP addresses. The same is true of China. The same is true of some Middle Eastern countries like Iran. And, you know, part of the promise, right, part of the broad dream of the Internet was that it would open up. Uh, the world, right? It give people access to communication they otherwise wouldn't have because traditional systems were so walled off. And here we are in walled off systems again. So, um, obviously there's a, there's a huge financial impact to this to major Western vendors of technology. Um, but it also, I think philosophically is putting kind of a nail in the coffin of some of the idealism that came with the early internet 15, 20, 25 years ago. And and maybe it also means that the tech correction means more than just, you know, social media uh, changing its tune in regards to how it interacts with their lives. And I think it's also, it's important for us to help students have a basic understanding of how the internet works, right? How does TCP IP work? Um, what does it mean to have net neutrality? You know, the idea that packets are, um, you know, transferred in, in this in this network and, and they don't have necessarily defined paths. <clears throat> and as the Internet was originally designed, you have intelligence um, at the edges, you know, rather than inside the network. And so, uh, I mean, that's probably things that students are going to get, you know, in a computer science class. Um, you wonder, you know, how the, the thing is, one of the reasons that literacy is important, not just for, you know, folks who are going to code and take a computer science class, it's because of the policy implications, right? I mean, the citizenship implications, representatives need to understand how the Internet works, because if they're going to regulate things, you know, there are there's potential for, for things to get broken. And I think where I might have in the past had, you know, more concern thinking about you know, corporate interests and whether, you know, companies that imposed a quality of service sort of restriction, like, you know, if a cable company or other ISP <clears throat> was going to favor packets for like their streaming video services over others and how that was going to maybe not break the Internet, but, you know, be bad. I mean, you know, what did I read today? That Are there like 1.2 billion people in China or something? Um, there, there's a lot of folks in China. And I don't know that we've got the articles in, in here um, as far as I've been listening to the daily podcast and the revelations coming out about the oppression of the Uyghur Muslim minority in China. Uh, the, they've, they've had a big leak of documents and there was a, a person whose mother was actually interviewed and just the scale of oppression and surveillance there and the degree to which their values, you know, breach from ours or they, 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 di- they diverge from, from our Western values in terms of freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, all of these kinds of things. These are all, you know, you know, tied in together. And so I do th- agree when you talk about initial optimism about the internet and about how all this was going to, you know, bring us together and, uh, you know, I'll allow for, <clears throat> the free free distribution and sharing of ideas, but hopefully the liberalization of, you know, governments and regimes, which, uh, you know, would might be more, might be oppressive, might not be as uh, embracing of, sort of, you know, liberal democracy and sort of, you know, universal declaration of human rights kinds of values. I think all of this, you know, doesn't bode exceptionally well. So where else would you like to go this wonderful Evening. By the way, what's the temperature tonight in Missoula? Is it cold? Um, it's not cold yet. Uh, it will be. There's a there's a cold front coming in. I know that I was talking to uh, some folks from Coeur d'Alene this afternoon. They said it was raining and bleeding there, which means that's it's 33 now. It'll get down to 26 tonight, and then by middle of next week, our lows will be in the single digits. So there you go. Winter is on its way. White Christmas a coming. So. Right. Well, let's get some of these other bummer articles out of the way, uh, uh, 
before we kind of jump into the, the, the lighter tech stuff. Uh, great New York Times article on December 6th uh, about, and I put this under tech correction, that despite the fact that this has been a well-known problem for years now, you can still go and buy clicks and likes and followers on social media. And this uh, expose uh, by Davy Alba talks about how many of, of uh, the anti Corruption, maybe manipulation, anti-manipulation strategies that that big social media tech has been trying to push into place um, have uh, not been successful. And you can still go out and buy um, uh, 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 likes uh, on social media. And I think we're just we're really at a point where and I was thinking about this earlier, like ways that that things like this have made so much of the promise of the Internet a falsehood. You know, this, this notion that, that there will be, uh, uh, mobile, or not mobile, but, uh, crowdsourced taxonomies that we could help organize the internet and that people would, would be able to organize this as a kind of a large herd together. That idea is not completely dead, but in a world where we are utilizing metrics of social media in order to rank things for whatever reason or in whatever way can be manipulated by people that that uh, are taking cash to to utilize click farms, server farms to be able to uh, manipulate the statistics. We, we have a long way to go before we can trust those things. And again, we, we talk about this in the podcast part of the tech correction, but, you know, we are in an era right now where we have to consider, you know, whether or not the strategies we, we are using or have been using over time are still effective. And so uh, as an example of this, I it, it, it's behind a, a very significant uh, a wall, so it's hard to know how this impacts this. But if I can go buy, you know, 100 clicks on my Instagram post, why is it that I can't go buy 100, you know, boosters of uh, my website to get it higher up on a search engine? Um, I know that uh, the, the magic of so-called search engine uh, uh, optimization, uh, FEO as it's called, a lot of people think it's fake, a lot of people think it's real. Uh, you can buy services that help you do this, but in a more gray market or black market way, can you spend you know $500 and get your website to rocket up to the top of common search terms? So again, uh, uh, reader, surfer, beware, but that is still a phenomenon here in 2019. So I, I just dropped a, a link in on the same headline of tech correction, kind of related. This was a BuzzFeed article from December 10th. Exclusive Facebook fired a contractor who has paid thousands in bribes to reactivate banned ad accounts. You know, the amount of manipulation that is continuing for social media, not only, you know, buying clicks and things like that, but, you know, creating false accounts and, you know, utilizing this incredible targeting, which has really is, is unprecedented, right? We've never in the history of the planet had the ability for an advertiser who, who can basically be anyone, right? You or I can go on Facebook and, and buy ads. Um, I bought ads. In fact, I boosted yeah. our last podcast for, I think I paid like $15 just to kind of see, but you know, you can specifically target and, and I did, you know, different countries and people who are interested in education and technology and things like that. So, you know, it's we I'm glad to see uh, Facebook taking action here, but we have very little to no regulation in this space. So there's really not government folks involved in the United States. And this is what we've talked about before with the GDPR, the general directive on privacy regulation is that right uh, a european privacy law something like that it's the something G- like that yeah take our word for it it's the gdpr anyway they are in some ways you know further ahead of us in the united states in terms of trying to advocate for privacy law but yeah there it's uh it's a wild west out there and you know while it may sound encouraging that some actions are being taken you know, we really don't have any any idea or certainly a clear idea as people on the outside of the scale of these kinds of issues and, you know, how, how difficult it is, but just also, you know, how, how big the problem is. Uh, let's pick up another, uh, I think I put it under Tech Cold War um, article. So I we did the, the China article from The Guardian telling government offices to remove foreign computer equipment. Here is the FCC. This is from Wired. 
their latest issue, I guess, the December 12th issue, the FCC's push to purge Huawei from U.S. networks. And part of the difficulty here, and I think they specifically cite, you know, rural, um, you know, uh, cooperatives and, and ISPs and, and carriers. Uh, Huawei's got some some relatively inexpensive stuff. And so what we're trying to do as a country, I say we, the United States, is we're, you know, in in the midst of a transition to a 5G standard, which is going to be dramatically faster for everybody, right? What I've read indicates that, you know, students and or teachers bringing a 5G device to our campus today, you know, might have more bandwidth available on their device than we yeah. have for the entire network. I mean, it's a, it's a huge leap forward, but what the uh, FCC is uh, trying to do is to, um, you know, have a ban. Well, they are, they, they've, they've announced, uh, you know, big investments, but they are, are pushing, uh, that everyone cut Chinese equipment out. And so the rural carriers struggling to be profitable, you know, have in the past bought Huawei and ZTE tech equipment uh, because they were cheap. And so, you know, rural carriers are saying they've never had cybersecurity issues. Why are they doing that? When it, when it comes to anything involving national security, we never have the whole picture, right? There's classified levels of, of things and, you know, we'll be able to, glimpse into what is uh is happening but there's going to be you know a bigger picture that those that have classified security clearances uh you know have that we don't have so it's interesting because <laughs> you know the gov- the US federal government hasn't come out and and also I guess when it comes to cyber right if you if you admit all of the things that you know <laughs> then that might you know let your adversaries know what you know and perhaps how you know them and all of this kind of stuff. So there's a lot of things that are, that are kind of hidden here, but basically the U S is convinced that there's either active, you know, operations today, or there's potential for these Chinese manufactured devices uh, to be, to be utilized, frankly, and I'll, I'll be cynical here, frankly, in, in the same way that we've seen the U S government operate. And that's part of what the Snowden, um, disclosures, you know, revealed was that we had these massive taps on, on the internet pipes that came in and went out from the United States, I think on either coast. And so then the, the NSA, the National Security Agency, you know, is able to, to take that. And, and if it's not encrypted data or if they can break the encryption, they can, they can sniff it and listen to it. So I don't know. I don't, I can't, I can't say right now what my recommendation is on a policy basis, but again, this just, it points to the new tech cold war. And I think this is the new normal. And I don't think that's part of the lexicon or the, the jargon or the vocabulary, or it's not in the curriculum, right? If you've got a textbook today, it doesn't say, and the new tech war or the new tech cold war that's broken out, you know, between the United States and China and Russia. And so this is just sort of another sign of the times of uh, the tech cold war. When you were in Costa Rica, Jason, didn't you pick up some Huawei handsets and check them out? Was yeah, that I did. Yeah, I was. That's exactly what I did. And the Huawei branding has been interesting to me. I'm an Android guy, right? So I like to look at the Android phones. And Huawei had some really amazing, what we would call uh, uh, flagship phones in, in the United States parlance for cell phones that were substantially less. Oftentimes they weren't intended for the U.S. market, so they may or may not work on all networks here, or they would have kind of uh, less coverage than, than one made for the United States network. But I was in a Walmart in Costa Rica, and they had an electronic section that actually looked closer. If you've been into an electronic section of a Sam's Club or a or a Costco, it looked closer to that than it did uh, like the electronic section of a typical Walmart in the United States. And as it turns out, uh, 80% of the cell phones there, there were a couple of uh, uh, brand names I had not heard of before that I had to look up. There were a couple of uh, third or fourth, uh, uh, maybe C or D level uh, brand names for cheaper phones. And then there was a ton of Huawei phones and they were uh, popular. Uh, they were uh, reasonably priced and they had statistics that would have, that the phone itself cost two or $300 that for similar, uh, uh, similar 
uh, uh, innards, uh, similar tech innards would be something that would be closer to eight or nine hundred dollars in the United States market. And, you know, uh, a interesting phenomenon there, but, you know, the, the fact that some international brands are probably going to end up being, um, not international brands, really regional brands, not because of the, the quality of the equipment or the reach of the company, but rather because of, of geopolitical pieces. That's, uh, uh, that that's a little uh, it's interesting it certainly uh, goes against i think where these technologies are more broadly going one more quick article on this topic and then we can turn to something more optimistic positive and kumbaya uh this is time from september 26th uh this is an article by richard stengel and the title is we're in the middle of a global information war here's what we need to do to win it um i actually listened to this over the weekend on pocket which as an aside, if you're not doing that, that is a really fantastic thing to be able to save articles to either read later, absent all of the ads and distractions, or tap on the little headphone icon and listen to it. And it also will tell you how many minutes it's going to take to listen to it, which is pretty cool. Uh, Stangle was um, a U.S. Uh, representative, um, a, a, a diplomat, um, he was undersecretary of state for public diplomacy for three years in Russia. And he is recounting, you know, interactions that followed the invasion of Crimea and the ways in which, you know, Russian officials um, were engaging in cyber operations against the United States there and in the way that they've they've ramped up. So anyway, it is. uh yeah, it's it's a dangerous world out there, kids, and uh, the technology tools are are being used. Um, I would say, I, I mean, how do, I don't know how you weigh this, but they're a huge part of the ways in which nation states are are actively engaged in warfare and politics. Right? Doesn't Sun Tzu say the war is the extension of politics by other means? No, that was or was that Clausewitz? Hey, I'm thank you. I don't know. Sun Tzu was about converting wills. I think that is what Clausewitz said. Anyway, those of you that are better on your military theory can, you know, correct me there. But the point is, <clears throat> we have lots of different ways that we try to affect and influence the the actions of others, and uh, cyber plays a huge role in that. So, thoughts on that, or would you like to go ahead and take us to other uh, articles, Jason? Yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to add much more to that. So um, let's go ahead and maybe pivot to some of the kind of ecosystem world this week. Uh, let's start maybe with Google. A couple of interesting things uh, from the Google world this week. First, uh, Chrome, the newest version of Chrome, which I believe is 80, version 80 of the Chrome browser. This includes Chrome OS, now tells you if you have a stored Google password um, that is in a compromised database somewhere. And this is actually a follow-up of an article we talked about uh, uh, several weeks ago where there's now a password check process where you can go in and have Google check all of your passwords for the purpose of uh, looking at uh, compromised password databases to see if that username and password appears in any any way, shape, or form there. And now it goes ahead and tells you that that the username and password that you're using for a website that you're getting into um, is a compromised one. And as it turns out, I found this out uh, uh uh, myself, uh, a couple weeks ago, I logged to a website I hadn't been in for some time. I was us- utilizing a username and password that was kind of a standard one, a process, or a, a process I no longer utilize. I have unique, long, unique passwords for all of, of the websites I utilize now, and doubly so for the ones that, that are school-related, that have student data in them. And as it turns out, um, that uh, username and password I utilized to get in that site had been a compromised one. And so it's a great security piece. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, the, there is some controversy because some people don't like the fact that, that, that Chrome has the ability to save usernames and passwords, and instead you should be utilizing a third-party password manager. But I do think the value add of looking at the databases is both uh, pretty interesting and an amazing uh, uh, functionality for the Chrome. It also points to how vital it is that all of us protect our passwords for our Gmail and, and Google accounts yep. with the most secure multi-factor methods we can, which we'll <clears throat> preview my geek of the week that I'll, that I'll talk about, which involves uh, a, requ- a bequest to Santa. Um, I think there's something really powerful about, you know, seeing that personalized. 
you know, yeah. and it's one thing because I've used this and, and shown people this with have I been pwned this list of breaches. But when you are looking at the specific password and it's telling you how many duplicates you have, you've used the same password on this many, you know, websites and this many, the, you know, these, this many accounts, they're on the dark web. You know, if you're continuing to use that password and you're thinking it's effective at all, especially against automated hacks, which are increasingly prevalent, <clears throat> I think it's a real, uh, it's a it's a powerful tool, and let me just give this to everyone as homework, okay? If you're listening to the EdTech Situation Room, Wes is giving you holiday homework this year, and your holiday homework is to go in and utilize either this um, password, you know, security check inside Chrome. If you're using any kind of password manager, LastPass, OnePassword, they call them different things. I think OnePassword calls it like Watchtower, but it's the same sort of thing where it's going to compare your usernames and passwords to these known breaches that are out there, and it's going to tell you the ones to fix. And so this is what we all need to do. You know, this, I mean, we obviously should do it ASAP, but we have our lives. So do a little bit at a time, you know, a few each week, sit down over the holidays and do this. This is like spring cleaning. This is like changing the, the batteries in your, in your uh, fire, um, you know, fire alarms. You've got to change filters in your, you know, HVAC system. Like there's stuff that you do because you're a homeowner and you want to be safe. We are all stewards of a digital you know, life that we have with all of these accounts and all of these, these passwords and things like that. And so, you know, this, this is a two-parter go in and change your passwords. Cause I'm, I'm giving myself this homework. I've already started it, but I need the encouragement to finish it. I think you've, you're, you're definitely further along with this than I am, Jason. And then also have the conversation with your family members, have it with parents, have it with siblings, um, have it with your children, because protecting our passwords, avoiding identity theft and, and trying to make ourselves a less vulnerable target for those who would want to, you know, at worst, just sell our accounts to somebody and, you know, at worst, you know, break into our lives and significantly disrupt them by, you know, accessing our bank accounts or doing, you know, other kinds of, of malicious things. These are realities. It's not just, you know, I don't have a tinfoil hat on as I, you know, share this with you right now. Uh, <clears throat> this is, this is stuff that we need to take seriously. And it's not just something for the geeks. This is something for everybody because we all have these accounts. So backslash rant over. <laughs> Great. Well, and one other quick piece of Google news. Um, uh, Google has announced that the end of Google Glass is here. So they will no longer be updating the Google Glass platform. This does not include the more industrial Google Glass that had been released a couple years back. That will continue to receive updates, although my understanding was that Google Glass was extremely expensive um, and uh, included the promise of, of several years of updates. But I don't, I, I, I don't know if we've ever really talked about Google Glass on this podcast because it was a uh, phenomenon was passed um, before we started uh, our broadcasting uh, back in 2016. But uh, did you ever own Google Glass? No, Felix Giacomino loaned me a set that I got to borrow for a while, but. I uh, I don't know if that's because of my glasses or whatever, but it it was something that I tried a little bit, but it was really just kind of a a cool thing to you know say yeah I've I've tried that. But how about you? Had, did you? I, I don't think you were a buyer. Did, were you? No, I never I never owned a pair. I, I borrowed a pair over a weekend once to play with, and then you know like every tech conference, you know there's there's uh, watch there's two kinds of people at, at tech conferences uh, during the Google Glass era. There was the people that brought a pair to share with everyone. And then there's there are people that brought pairs there just to use. And they were a little bit outliers because they were, well, and it, there was nothing really consistent about that crew other than to say 
that uh, they it it it, it, it did seem to wreck some barriers, right? Like despite the fact it was a relatively minor piece of hardware, I felt like it was a barrier to talk to people and didn't invite uh, a conversation. Instead, to block people because oftentimes they would be interacting with their glass as opposed to interacting with you. But um, it, I considering how you know that was the thing, right? And how a lot of tech pundits and frankly the the mainstream media jumped on on top of that uh, uh, as a, you know, this is the future and the future is now. I'm convinced that a wearable uh, that is has a vision component to it is still very much in the realm of possibility, but it's probably going to look more Star Trek-y with some kind of contact or lens or something that's the very, very, very minimalized as opposed to the Google Glass, which, you know, frankly, wasn't that, you know, that heavy of a piece of hardware, but still seemed to at least elicit some response from people. I'll see if I can find the link to this and put it in our show notes. But the coolest virtual field trip I saw with Google Glass was a teacher who was in CERN in Switzerland, which is like the uh, the particle accelerator and, you know, somehow and whatever with their with connectivity. And, you know, he obviously had a lot of help, but, you know, wandering around showing everybody who, you know, was watching, look at this and I'm seeing this and isn't this incredible. And and so anyway, I, I think probably GoPro cameras and, um, yeah. you know, the, the head mounts that those have and the ways that, that skiers and snowboarders and people like that, that that's that's a little bit more the way that, you know, first person see what I see right. videography is, is being done. And, and yes, it is this massive, you know, massive camera that you've got strapped to your head. So, um, well, one thing I would say, it's interesting that that has taken off as its own, uh, its own category platform because the camera component of Google Glass was part of what was so controversial about Google Glass. Uh, the fact that, that people could instantly record a video with a camera that was propped to their head, uh, that, that didn't go well for some folks. And lots of claims that in bands at Google Glass in theaters and in locker rooms and in gyms, and that the GoPro is really the application that survives because we really don't have smart, smart, tiny displays yet that are, you know, shooting beams into audio. Yeah, it makes me think. I wonder, did anybody ever walk into a bar, you know, where, wearing their snowboarding uh, helmet with the GoPro, you know, on top, and you know, fa- face an angry crowd that was like, "You're not gonna, you're not gonna live stream this." I mean, anyway, it's just the, the benefit of that from a privacy standpoint is that it's not minimal. You know, it, it's glaringly obvious if you've got something like that strapped to your head. So, yeah, it, interesting to see how that how that continues to develop. I'm sure on the spy side, right. You know, are the James Bond, not just like the James Bond fans, but you know, those that are involved in real spy activities. Uh, yeah. It's probably a little surprising how small things can be. I have a friend who was uh, stationed in Moscow and anyway, that was, it was an interesting couple of years, you know, having, having his, his house bug, knowing that everything, they said was being recorded and possibly, you know, videoed things like that. So that technology right. certainly marched on, but in terms of consumer product, I think the out, the outrage that people have from a privacy standpoint will probably limit the broad adoption of technologies like that. Yep. Can we do some Apple? Uh, oh, that's what I was going to ask you to go next. So Wes, yes. has something recently been released from Apple? Yeah, so Mac Rumors on December 10th. Uh, and, of course, people, journalists love these kind of headlines, right? But it's kind of crazy. A maxed-out MacBook Pro will cost over $52,000. And then I think you dropped this one in from The Verge, uh, same date, December 10th. The Mac Pro's optional wheels cost $400. And, you know, before I just you know, give you the impression that I think it's totally ridiculous, let's remember not that long ago – and aren't you, Jason, the proud owner of a trash can Mac Pro, or did you? No, I never bought one. I wanted oh, to really I badly. I did. I did buy a, a cheese grater Mac Pro in 2008 that survived until I kind of moved on from it in 2015-ish. But it was a good, good, faithful uh, yeah. servant for seven years. So that cheese grater, you know, Mac is really kind of the the grandfather, I think, of this new Mac Pro. So I remember, you know, lamenting on the show. 
probably, you know, a, more than a year ago, uh, you know, what about the pro, you know, is Apple, uh, you know, abandoning them? So I, I think it's great. This is a reminder though, that the, that this pro level is, is not for schools. It's not for the faint of heart or the, you know, the, the folks that don't have tons of disposable income. Um, but you know, for those that need tons of, of horsepower, I've referenced this before, but when I was at Texas Tech in the <clears throat> early 2000s, um, Apple, you know, had the, the Mac Pro G4 and they ran this ad campaign because it had been classified as a weapon by the, by the Department of Defense or, or Homeland Security, whatever we called it at that point. And so it, it had export restrictions because it was so powerful, right? And so it's pretty amazing now to think about, you know, computational power and, uh, you know, if, if indeed quantum computing is happening and is, has been, you know, we've had that breakthrough. I mean, part of what they've said with that is that's going to render perhaps all forms of encryption that we have today moot because, you know, these computers are going to be so powerful and so fast. They're going to be able to, to decrypt basically anything that is a, is, is a mathematical algorithm. Right. So anyway, I will not be shopping for these. Jason, let's just do the educational question. Do you think we have any educational institutions anywhere um, that might be, you know, doubt, able to, to purchase and, and working in this pro line of the new Mac pro? Sure. What, what the headlines leave out that I think is the important headline here is not that the most expensive Mac Pro is $2,000. And looking at the hardware, it's not quite worth it. You're definitely paying an Apple premium there for that if you start to compare similar hardware on the PC side. And by the way, the $52,000 Mac has a terabyte and a half of RAM, right? Like, whereas there are still computers being sold today that have two gigabytes of RAM, this has 1,500 uh, uh, megabytes of RAM, right? Giga, so gigabytes is a terabyte. Oh, like, excuse me, like gazillions, right? Like, like lots of, yeah. uh, yeah, megs. Um, but you know, the point being that, that, you know, that it's a ridiculous computer. And I have seen articles defending both the cost of the $52,000 computer and also there are applications, many of them in, for example, the high-end uh, CGI or animation world where the time saved by buying the the terabyte and a half uh, uh, RAM is worth it because, you know, it, it's time savings. And also, Apple treats the $52,000 customers really well. Something goes wrong, it, they'll put the technician in to fix it, right? These comes with service agreements that are quite extraordinary. In my mind, I think the biggest disappointment here is not the higher end, it's the lower end. And to get the lowest level Mac is $5,200. That is without the premium monitor that has the $1,000 stand that comes with it. This is just the computer itself. And one of the things I really liked about the um, the, the cheese grater Macs, the Mac Pros pre-trash can Macs, was that you could buy one for $1,200, $1,500 that was relatively low in spec and then over time upgraded as you had time and need. And those computers were infinitely serviceable. You could literally, well, like with my, my Mac Pro, my home Mac Pro, I replaced the spinning hard drives with SSD drives. And then uh, I replaced the SSD drives with a rated uh, uh, SSD drive that ran super fast. In fact, the, I, I had to take it in to get a fan serviced in the uh, Apple store in Spokane. At that point, I was running four um, uh, four uh, small SSD drives in, in a RAID 0 configuration. So super, 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 super fast. And the guy there ran tests on the drive and said, I've never seen him drive this fast in a Mac Pro before. This is awesome, man. And it was you know really interesting and cool. But I wish Apple had come up with a it, – it couldn't have been $1,200. I mean, that, that was 10 year, 12 years ago when I bought the lower end that. But he could, they could have come up with a, a, a $2,500. $3,000 Mac Pro that could have had user updatable parts in it to allow what what is, is widely referred to as the prosumer uh, a market wrapped up. And if that Mac had been released, you know, five or six years ago, I might have stuck on the Mac platform. But the fact that they didn't have a competitive desktop that had the high-end components in it uh, uh, and that they were sticking with the Mac Mini as the, the desktop of choice for home users, um, I think that's a real mistake. And so, no, I don't really think there's going to be a lot of schools 
that Navy universities with uh, CAD departments, with art, uh, digital art departments, I could see them maybe going in that direction because you can get five to seven, eight years out of it, but it's, it's priced too high. Here's, here's the market for this, and it's Pixar. And it's anybody engaged in super complicated rendering. Um, I'll just jump to, I, I was just inspired to drop it in as a second geek of the week. The science of Pixar. Okay. This is a fantastic science museum traveling exhibit. <clears throat> when I went out to Denver, Colorado in October and visited our son, uh, participated in a, in a fun design sprint that uh, Dr. Scott McLeod put together. Uh, we went, uh, my son and I went to the Denver Museum and saw it. And the website has, I don't know if it's comprehensive, but it has a lot of elements. It's incredible. It is all about, it should, it should be called not just the science of Pixar, but the science, the coding and math of Pixar, right? Because, you know, Toy Story, was that like 20 years ago? I mean, it's kind of incredible. It's, it's happened so quickly. But, you know, from Toy Story to, you know, the the, the latest, uh, you know, Pixar creations, it reminds me a little of Star Wars, right? When they, when George Lucas, you know, 1976, episode four, A New Hope, I mean, the scenes and the ways in which they had, you know, actual models. And I mean, that was really cutting edge stuff. But even when you look to what the return of the Jedi and the, and the numbers of simultaneous, air, you know, spacecraft and spaceships that were shown, and today, what's possible is is unbelievable. But you know, it takes tons and tons of time to um, and processor cycles. Really, is what we should say because the time is based upon how fast the computer is. So you know, a terabyte and a half of RAM, you know, for a Pixar animator is going to be you know put to good use. In fact, they have you know, banks and banks of computers that, that I think they call it the render farm. And so when they create something, they'll send it there and there'll be, you know, partial renders that they'll use as they're storyboarding things out and trying to think of what you call the, um, uh, well, there's a word for, you know, the, the partial, um, you know, the, the movie that, ha- that has, you know, different storyboards and things like that, but until it, it fully gets fleshed out, it's it's just incredible. And some of the statistics that they had in this, um, you know, science of Pixar display talking about how many hours it took, you know, when they were doing Toy Story versus, you know, the, the number of, uh, uh, characters and, and objects and, and the complexity. So probably not going to see that coming to a school near you, but hey, the fact is a relatively reasonable quote unquote <clears throat> processor with, with, you know, four or eight gigs of RAM, uh, that can that can last you, I think, for a long time. And yeah. <clears throat> I'm definitely enjoying, you know, stepping up from the very thin A7 base, or what was it, M7? It was like an iPad processor and a very thin <clears throat> MacBook, and that was my daily carry for uh, at least three years. And so, you know, I've actually moved to uh, a Pro, and I've enjoyed the, the, the horsepower there. Um, but, you know, it's... For what a lot of us do day in and day out, using the web as our platform, processing information, accessing information, you know, creating things that are not super heavy in terms of the video rendering that they take, uh, or, you know, the CAD. It's, uh, you know, we're, we're all able to use fairly lightweight hardware in terms of, of the hardware requirements. So it, uh, is, is good to see Apple taking care of the pro user because if they don't, you know, then Windows is the only available option or Linux, of course. Um, so I think as a, as a Mac aficionado, you know, publicly not, not hiding that fact here on the show. Um, I'm glad to see them taking care of the pro market, but don't anticipate yep. to be touching one of these myself anytime soon. Yep. Absolutely. Well, let's do a couple of quick Microsoft articles. Uh, we mentioned this last time uh, that Microsoft, a reminder that Windows 7 for Microsoft is end of life in January. And if you are still running Windows 7, you're going to start to get full screen upgrade prompts next month. And my guess is, is that that uh, will probably come with a free opportunity to upgrade to Windows 10 directly if your computer can handle Windows 10. But remember, the risk here is that you stop getting security updates um, if you are a typical Microsoft consumer. And, and I have to say, like, I know there's been some shenanigans uh, regarding updates and such, but I honestly believe that Windows 10 is an infinitely better operating system than, than Windows 7, which hasn't really been actively developed for the last five years. So uh, Windows 10 beats it out. So you'll start 
getting those notifications. And a quick thought on this. I listened to the latest Security Now podcast either over the weekend or last last week, I guess. And they talked about how, yes, Windows 10 is a great step forward, but basically it means perennial instability because of new updates and new refreshes. This is the new normal. And where enterprise customers might be used to saying, okay, we've shifted to, you know, Windows XP or Windows 7, and now we got it locked down and we got it stable and we got it, you know, Windows 10, I think because the computing environment continues to just be this cat and mouse security vulnerabilities, zero days, constant patching, um, it's a it's a different environment. And I, I don't know. I I think that we're going to see the emergence uh, at the enterprise level, especially with virtualization. Um, you know, with some more terminal based, you know, um, uh, what is it called? Um, you know, when you when you've when you've got essentially terminals uh, that are that are going through the cloud, um, my brain is not working. But but I think we're gonna we're gonna continue to see some alternatives, especially you know with with updates happening more like an app store you know kind of update, and because of security, security is going to continue to to be a good big driver there. What else for yep. Microsoft? Well, uh, the Verge report on uh, December 5th that Microsoft is starting to push out design guidelines. Uh, uh, for its new, I, I don't know how to really describe it other than to say it's, it's framework for design. Uh, it's called fluent design. And you've probably heard me talk about in the past, if uh, listeners to the podcast know that I'm really into material design, which is the design language that Google uses for its apps, but it doesn't look all that different. It actually is a very flat style design, which material design is as well. But you're going to start to notice that probably other apps will design the fluent design language on both its Android and its iOS uh, uh, apps. And remember, Microsoft isn't a a mobile phone operating system uh, uh, owner, right? They've decided to go all in on all mobile operating systems, really, but with a specific focus on Android. But, uh, you know, their apps do look very similar across their entire architecture. So if you're looking at mobile word and iOS and mobile word Android, they're very similar. And it's interesting to see that Microsoft, you know, the strategy of theirs to just abandon its, um, uh, its mobile aspirations to focus on what, uh, uh, Android could provide it as a platform is, is super interesting. And then one, oh, go ahead, Wes. Nope. Go ahead. That's right. One one last uh, one last note. Uh, I thought this was interesting just because of it shows you the real shift at Microsoft over the last five or so years. But the uh, the first Microsoft app is available on Linux. It's the Microsoft Teams app, which is their collaboration software suite. It's part of Office 365, and it's now available as a native Linux app. Wow. Wow. Miguel Gulen, shout out to you. I'm going to tweet that at Miguel. Uh, can you tell us about this uh, Amazon or Apple family article from the New yeah. York Times? And would you, are you going to yourself, are you going to allow yourself to be defined in such a binary way? Well, see, that's, that's, that's what's the interesting part of the article, right? So first of all, to be clear, this is an older article. And I heard this referred to on last week's This Week in Tech. And I heard it, or actually I saw the article referred to in another article I was reading uh, later. And I was like, well, this, this, this really did strike a chord with me, but, um, this this article was released after Amazon released their large horde of new products this year, and they were kind of making fun of the fact that we're talking about it was 70 products that Amazon released. But we are starting to get to a point because of the ecosystem thing, right? And we by the way, this is New York Times, March 9th, are you an Amazon or Apple family? That's the okay. headline. Yep. And what's happening is that, uh, because these systems don't work very well together, um, uh, I'm sorry, with, with one another, right? And instead work with all the equipment inside the ecosystem, slowly and surely consumer households are becoming really, um, uh, we use the term walled gardens here a lot, but it's a walled garden of one ecosystem over another because they're just, they just don't work very well, uh, across ecosystems. So if you're an Apple family and having been an Apple Apple guy for a long time. I can tell you that stuff always works amazingly well together. But in the same way that Apple stuff works well together, if you throw in an Android phone into it or a, a Windows computer or try to shake up the operating system, suddenly the crossover uh, uh, to be able to have these parts work together dramatically decreases. And suddenly now incompatibilities surface. And uh, Amy Webb in this this New York Times article talks about that the problem, one of the problems with this is, 
is that one of these two uh, uh, ecosystems, Apple or Amazon, is is headed towards kind of higher end users, and one of the ecosystems is very much headed towards more budget conscious ecosystems, and it's going to start to turn into a she calls it a digital caste system because uh, it it it's different families are going to you know either have access to the high end stuff or not, and uh, you know it, we've talked about this in the past too in regards to you can pay for a better internet. That's kind of what uh, is, is starting to happen, that people are exchanging money to get rid of advertising-driven driven internet, which makes the internet essentially better. Less advertising, less intrusive data uh, issues, less trading your data for income, um, and that's going to create, you know, lots of, of, of interesting phenomenon, right? But one of the things that could happen here is that there's kind of a different levels of, of technology worlds. If you can afford the great one, it's going to be a better experience, but if all you can afford is the budget one, it's still going to work together. It's just not going to be a very good experience. So, Wes, I would say that my family, um, not necessarily because of, of cost, but because of, of, of factors of the different platforms we support, has become a bit of an Amazon family. That's what our stuff runs on Amazon in our house. And where are you at at the Casa de Friar? We are the, the Google and Apple Home. So, you know, Google Wi-Fi, uh, Google Smart Speakers. Um, we're doing some dabbling in the IoT world with some um, uh, Apple HomeKit compatible, Apple Watch, you know, compatible devices. And, and I will say it's pretty nice to be able to just, you know, tap right there on the watch and have magical things happen. Um, so I told my wife the other day to forego you know purchasing what the it's not is it the no the echo show what uh, what is what is uh google call their screen for the kitchen uh, uh speaker <laughs> it's the home something i can't remember what it is yeah it's this home it's the kitchen screen the home screen it's yeah. the smart speaker with a screen um anyway that that was yeah we didn't need to need didn't need to spend on that um i would we're gonna have to do geeks the weekend a little bit we started a, a couple minutes late um, I'd like for you to do that YouTube uh, Clarity article, but let me skip down really quickly to a couple other security articles. So I thought this one was, speaking of IoT, very interesting. CNET, December 6th, 2019. FBI recommends that you keep your IoT devices on a separate network. And yeah. as a tech director, I mean, this is something that we, you know, have been have been implementing in the last couple of years. We have Wi-Fi clocks. We have Wi-Fi thermostats. In fact, we've had those for years. <clears throat> and so, you know, rather than just have everything together on the same network, um, that article talks about, you know, if somebody gets access to your IoT devices, you don't want them to be able to have access to everything else that you have, you know, on your, on your home network. Um, and then... I also dropped in this article, this is also older, this is from February, but it relates to my main geek of the week. This is from The Verge on February 22nd, 2019. The best hardware security keys for two-factor authentication. And so security has been something we continue to talk about and harp on. Um, And so this was a recommendation at that time, that's almost a year old, of what kind of physical keys that you know, are recommended for doing your, your multi-factor. So your thoughts, Jason, on separate network for IoT, are, are you living that? And can we do that with Google Wi-Fi? I haven't even tried that yet. Uh, I Well, I think you could set it up as the guest network, right? And as long as the guest network didn't require you to sign in, it was just a separate username and password. But the problem with that is, of course, that it, it uh, I think the guest network walls things off from other devices on the guest network. Right. So that I think that could be an issue. But, yeah, I have not considered this. Myself. I, mean, I have the equipment sitting in the basement. It would be hard for me to pull this off to create a second network. But it is when the FBI is saying that that's not based on on conjecture. They it's know not, something it's not that. Tom's guide or, you know, some some Yahoo. This this is the FBI. Yeah. Which, which by yeah. the way, still recommends that we cover our webcams, right? Sure. Yeah. And in fact, because of, of their recommendation, I do that myself uh, on any sensitive webcam I happen to be using. But the, uh, yeah, exactly. Right. So the, um, it's, it's not something I am doing yet, but I will say the article, maybe do a double take. How about that YouTube stuff on the FCC's guidelines? Yeah, so this is a follow-up from, from something we've talked about, I think, for, for a couple weeks now. But uh, YouTube has announced a bunch of changes because of 
COPA, which is the Child Online Protection Act, and they paid a very large fine, I think it was back in, in August or September, and then promised to create uh, new rules in regards to content that was primarily aimed at kids. When we say kids, we mean 13 and under in this context. And uh, there was a big hubbub because the new rules were uh, not uh, uh, accepted very pleasantly by a lot of the YouTube faithful who felt like that they were hazy enough and had a little too much risk without much in return. And as it turns out, um, uh, YouTube itself is, is now asking the FTC for more clarity about how they will enforce COPA in regards to platforms like YouTube. Because a lot of creators, and I've had my fifth and sixth graders, more of my sixth graders, tell me about this. You know, they see this as Armageddon. I mean, this is going to be the end of monetization for, for many yeah. channels. Because if they are are having a lot of young people connect, then I think the guideline is they can't monetize that. Is that correct? If you're creating for kids? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's not even if, if, if who's even connecting. If the content is aimed at or is perceived to be aimed at kids, then monetization is taken away and, and, and then also analytics is taken away. And, you know, it seems at, at face value to be a, you know, well, fine. It's aimed at kids, so you shouldn't be able to get the data because COPA says you can't and we should be careful about monetization. But remember, a lot of YouTube creators that that monetization is the funding that helps support the content in that channel. And sure. I know of channels that uh, aren't aimed at kids at all, but are like, I have a, a a friend who's a uh, who has a crafting channel, and based on the extremely hazy way that both the FTC and then ultimately the YouTube interpreted the FTC rules, felt like that they could have their monetization. So here's a crazy idea: Are we going to have a race to the bottom where you know creators are going to have to use profanity and you and make their make their shows immature, you know, to just prove that they're not targeting you know kids yeah. in order to monetize? I mean, what? What's going to happen? I mean, I, I don't I don't think we know. And uh, like I said, some of my more YouTube savvy uh, middle schoolers uh, are pretty convinced, I think, based on the you know YouTubers that they follow, that this is just going to be devastating to the creator community. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely true. And, you know, and remember, like, I, I, I don't think COPA's wrong, right? But like many of the rules we put into place for, for protection of children, it's just a really broad brush we end up painting, uh, these factors. And by the way, COPA was created well before there was a YouTube. So, uh, you know, I, it, 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 it's a different world that we're living in. And by the way, um, a lot of children's content is only YouTube from traditional. Uh, 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 makers of children's content as well, because that platform is a more sustainable platform than trying to find time on broadcast television. And if folks are not able to monetize, is that going to change the formula for who wants to go ahead and put their stuff, you know, out there on YouTube? And are we going to see, I mean, what does that do for music videos, right? And, and are they going to be using data to say, Hey, look, you know, X percent of, of the viewers of, uh, Gangnam style are, you know, teens. Therefore, you've created for, for youth and you can't monetize. It's going to be pretty interesting to see. Um, what happens with this. And I'd also connect that to the classroom. I've done this a little bit with my students this year. You know, who are the YouTubers you're watching? Do you watch YouTube? Not everybody does, but, you know, checking these folks out, having conversations about them, right? We live in a different day where there's, you know, so many different channels of content. And I think in a lot of homes, the adults may be very unaware of the some of the main perhaps influencers in the lives of the teens living under the same roof because they're not watching broadcast television they're watching YouTubers and if we don't have conversations about those kind of things and ask to see and talk with um you know there's there's really there's really important conversations to have there you know from from a media literacy standpoint in terms of the degree to which those folks you know may be influencing uh you know they are influencing you know kids um there, there, there's a lot of good things to talk about there. So we are a little bit past the hour. Uh, we need to geek of the week it. I'll go really quickly. I've already mentioned the science behind Pixar. My second one is on my wish list for Santa. It is the YubiKey 5CI dual connector, USB-C and lightning, $70 uh, smart key. And so this is a physical key which can plug into a USB device like my MacBook Pro laptop. Um, I am, I think I, I mentioned this, but I am now, 
I've got a new case for it. I'm sporting the iPhone 7. I have re- regressed and passed that nice 11 Pro on to a, a, a child in our family. Um, but with the Lightning connector, there's rumors, right, that, you know, some future generation of the iPhone may go USB-C. Uh, but you don't have to have a Bluetooth or other kind of wireless connection to do two-factor authentication. So with this $70 security device, I could turn off SMS, which is not a secure way, by the way, to to handle uh, two-factor uh, for, for certain accounts like Google accounts. And this physical key, I would have to plug in to the computer, to the phone, to the tablet, and that would be, you know, how I would authenticate. So I am toying with the idea of going, you know, going extreme because that that is a pretty extreme way to go. But uh, it's what Google has done. And they report they have not had any phishing attack breaches since they required all of their employees to use physical security keys. So your geek of the week, sir. Um, this is a quick one. If you're a current or former Audible customer, you should check your email to see if you've been offered any free books based on a settlement over some confusion over the expiration of credits. I will say the credits aren't universal. They don't get any book in Audible, but I was able to find three interesting books that I add to my Audible library. I was offered three credits in the settlement. And even if you're, you were a customer, you're not anymore and you qualified for the credit, you can still get those three free audio books. So, uh, type, I, I just typed, I saw the article, I typed the word audible into, uh, Gmail. There was the email. I was able to get those credits. Cool. I just searched mine and I'm, I'm eligible for one free title. So, there you go. There you but go. when you're not here, Jason, where can people uh, learn along with you? I am on the Twitters at Tech Savvy Teach, and I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education, www.ncce.org. And I'm W. Fryer on Twitter. My blog is speedofcreativity.org, and my curriculum site is mdtech.cassidy.org. You can find those links as well as links to all of the articles and resources we talked about in tonight's show on our website, edtechsr.com. You can also download small 32-kilobit audio versions and 320p uh, video versions, or you can subscribe to us on YouTube. Please follow us on Twitter at EdTechSR. We should be back next week for our special holiday gift-giving show. If you've got any suggestions for holiday gift items we should include, you can reach out on Twitter to Jason or I. You can use our hashtag EdTechSR. We will hopefully see any of those messages that you might uh, want to send. If you'd really like to be old school, you can go to westfriar.com slash contact and I'll get that as an email. And I'm sure, Jason, that you would love to receive more email. But anyway, Twitter is probably our preferred mechanism for getting us links. So until next time, we encourage you to stay savvy, stay safe. Thanks for listening to the EdTech Situation Room. We look forward to catching you again sometime soon. Good night.